Mustafa and Ken here. Welcome back to the Alert Medic One podcast. Alert Medic One response. All right, everybody, welcome back to Alert Medic One. We are here today with Dr. Jim Brady, and we're going to talk about the rise and fall of therapeutic hypothermia. And I'm going to let the gentleman introduce himself. Please go ahead, sir. How are you guys doing? So like I said, I'm uh, Dr. Jim Brady. Uh, I am currently an assistant professor in the Department of Medicine at University of Maryland School of Medicine and an attending physician in the Department of Medicine. Give me a You're good. Thanks for being on the show. Uh, Of course. Yeah. So uh, this is a topic that's been uh, kind of an interest of mine for the last couple of years. Uh, You know, doing a lot of intensive care stuff during my uh, residency training, doing a lot of cardiac arrest and post-cardiac arrest care, and kind of seeing the, like you said, the the rise and fall of the targeted targeted temperature management, as we know, is post-cardiac arrest hypothermia. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. I mean, so for me, uh, it all, I just straight off the bat always seems pretty seemed impractical from a ems perspective to uh be stuffing ice packs down someone's groin that we just got back (laughs) and that was how you know therapeutic hypothermia was uh i guess executed uh in the pre-hospital setting so no i'm really excited to have this conversation um so and yeah you have a bunch of uh papers that you reviewed for this what we'll do is we'll take your um i saw you had like a references sheet at the end of your notes we'll Mm -hmm. just post that with the episode of course um so where does this start where should we start so I always like to start at like, why do we do something in medicine? So looking at the physiology of, of hypothermia. So like you said, whenever you get a cardiac arrest in the streets, as soon as you get ROSC, the first thing you do is shove ice packs in the groin and the armpits, trying to cool the patient as fast as possible, trying to protect the brain. So before I started residency, and I'm sure most people think that the hypothermia is to help reduce the metabolic demand of the, uh, the brain, which is, helps protect the brain. Uh, and it actually isn't. So the reason why we started doing hypothermia is based on the animal models. And we noticed it actually reduced uh, the ischemia reperfusion injury that develops from the lack of blood flow, then low blood flow from cardi- uh, CPR. And then ultimately, when you have full ROSC, you're, you're reperfusing the areas of the brain that were ischemic or with lack of oxygen. So there's a couple different mechanisms that the ischemia reperfusion process uh, causes damage to the to the neurons and um, this hypothermia helps reduce like inflammation cascades that cause cell death and also reduces free radicals like when you think of hydrogen peroxide it produces free radicals that help kill you know the microbes that get into an infection or into a wound the reduction of free radicals from hypothermia helps reduce the edema which prevents increased intracranial pressure which helps reduce um, you know cell death in in the brain so help kind of protect the brain so that's kind of the, the science behind why hypothermia started to become a process that we would do in the post-arrest uh, phase. Can we just uh, take a quick aside here and just get the two-cent version for those who might not be as informed about free radicals? Of course. So free radicals are when you have, like, example, hydrogen is the most, uh, sorry, oxygen is the most common one. There's a bond that breaks and you have... Uh, electron that stays on one of each oxygen because oxygen is O2. So there's two oxygens and those free radicals uh, cause a lot of damage. Same thing with hydrogen peroxide. Hydrogen peroxide is two hydrogens, two oxygens. 
those oxygen bonds break and become very damaging to cell membranes, which is why you can kind of kill bacteria when you get a cut, you put hydrogen peroxide in it, it bubbles, and that's the that free radical formation that's kind of breaking down cell walls. Yeah, the way I think about it is like, uh, I mean, going back to like, you know, maybe high school chem- chemistry, you know, er- everyone wants to have that valence f- filled, right? So mm-hmm. once things are kind of out on their own and they don't have that partner that they want to be connected to, they're going to want to try to attach to whatever's around and that ends up being a pretty damaging process uh and um but no i'm, I'm glad you brought that up because you know that's a good, good good review yeah thank you cool so where were we uh we were talking about um the- oh yeah basically yeah. the the logic behind why we thought this was a good idea exactly right? yeah and so the the largest or the first i guess large study that looked at post-cardiac arrest hypothermia actually came out in 2002 and like i said the science behind it was based on a couple of animal models and large animals uh, pigs i think were, were some of the most common animals that they used and so that was kind of the foundation to why this research project started and it was published in the new england journal of medicine um, in 2002 where it looked at people had good neurologic outcomes at six months in patients that were cooled to 32 degrees celsius which is about 89 degrees fahrenheit between 89 and 90 degrees fahrenheit um, and then the secondary endpoint was looking at mortality or death at six months. So this one was looking more primarily at how good neurologically functioning alive people were, and then also looking at who lived and who died in the study. So unfortunately, with hypothermia, you can't really blind everyone into it. So obviously, the, the gold standard is a double-blinded randomized control study. You can't blind the people providing care to the direct patient because you're going to see that they're you know, temperatures are in the 30s, sure. like 32, sure. 33 degrees of instead of 37, which is a normal body temperature, 90, 98.6. So the patients that they included in the study were anyone with a cardiac arrest between the ages of 18 and 75. Uh, so no ki- no children were, were included in these studies. Um, and then they looked at an estimated uh, no-flow time, which is from a collapse arrest to the start of CPR, no more than 15 minutes. And then a no more than 60 minutes of CPR time. So if you had a prolonged downtime with a what they called a low flow time of more than 60 minutes, then you were also excluded from the study. Because obviously, if you do not get Ross back within 60 minutes, chances of any kind of recovery is not going to be good. So the study looked at, um, like I said, had 275 patients included in the study. And these were all patients that arrested in the hospital? Uh, these were actually pre-hospital. Oh, okay. Yes, oh, wow. these were all pre-hospital witness arrests. In fact, most of the studies that looked at this are pre-hospital with some having in-hospital component to it, which we'll talk about. Okay. Um, so, like I said, there's 275 patients that were included in this study. After the, I think they looked at 1,800 people that may have met criteria, and then they were excluded out for other reasons. Hypothermia was stopped early in 14 of those uh, 275 patients that were in rural total. Uh, six were because of death and three because of hemodynamic instability or uh, prolonged arrhythmias. So looking at the interval time from the return of spontaneous circulation to the initiation of the cooling process was 105 minutes, which is actually pretty impressive because typically you want to be within two hours to start cooling a patient. And then within eight hours to get to the target temperature. Unfortunately, 19 people in the uh, in the initial arm, which was 136 in the hypothermia arm, did not make it to the temperature for various reasons. So they maintained the hypothermia for about 24 hours and then gradually rewarmed the patient by five degrees or 0.5 degrees Celsius over an hour. And the study found that in the 
hypothermia, so the 32 degrees Celsius arm of the, the trial, 55% of the patients had a favorable neurologic outcome compared to 39% in the, the normal thermia uh, arm. Mm-hmm. And then they also found that death was about 14% lower in the hypothermia arm than it was in the, the normothermic arm. Um, there were some more complications that were noted. None of them were statistically significant, but they were kind of a trend towards. So hypothermia had a little bit more bleeding. You know, when we think about the, the trauma triad, sure, have, hypothermia sure. causes more bleeding. So Climatic. 26% of patients had, um, in the hypothermia arm, had some bleeding of any kind. It didn't say severe or not severe, compared to 19%. Uh, more patients in the hypothermia arm had sepsis, 13% compared to 7%. And then uh, lethal or long-lasting arrhythmias at 36% compared to 32%. Can I ask you a question about statistics and significance while we're talking about this here? Of course. Um, how come an almost doubled increased rate of sepsis is not considered statistically insignificant? Because it's based off of the standard deviation that comes into the, the play. So there's a lot of statistical analysis that goes into these uh, processes that look at what we call standard deviations of, is it within the possibility of being a statistical anomaly or is it other variable factors that could have caused it to happen? And so looking at the breakdown, you know, cause it is 13 compared to 7%, but in the, the grand scheme of it, 136 patients, 13% of that. So about 10 patients develop sepsis compared to 7% of 137, which is gonna be what about eight or nine patients probably. So in the grand scheme, the, the gross number of patients wasn't ah, that different. So the so. sample size is really the yeah, determining the small, factor. Yeah, the sample size okay. was only a small size. So had this been a study of 5,000 patients and it, it had been, that, that, then that would it, be more significant. Likely would have been statistically significant, yes. Okay. I want to bring up one note that you have here. Um, the baseline characteristics uh, for the normothermia patients, because that's very interesting to me. Right. Because, I mean, yeah, do you mind talking about that? So, once again, it wasn't statistically significant, um, but there were, I, I, looking at the baseline characteristics, more patients in the normothermia arm had diabetes and and coronary artery disease. Wasn't a significant amount. Like I said, it wasn't statistically significant, but uh, let me pull up the, the paper here. So, uh, 26 out of 138 patients, so 19% in the normothermia arm, compared to 11 out of 135, which is 8% in the hypothermia arm, had diabetes. And then 59 out of 138, which is 43%, compared to 43 out of 135, which is 32%, had coronary artery disease. So like I said, it wasn't statistically significant of a difference, but it was something that I was noticing as I was kind of going through these studies again to prepare for this talk. Sure, sure. And I mean, yeah, I mean, even if it's not statistically significant, I mean, those, I mean, just looking at raw numbers, uh, I mean, the difference is 75 individuals versus 54 individuals, Mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, sure. I mean, I guess we can argue significance, but that's, uh, I don't know. I feel like that's something. But yeah, go ahead. All right. So that was kind of the, the first study, and that's kind of what really spearheaded the idea that we need to perform, you know, post-cardiac arrest, hypothermia to save the brain, save the the heart muscle, save the the body and prevent death and bad neurological outcomes. Um, Then looking into 2013, so kind of 10 years in the future, we looked at a study that looked at comparing 33 degrees Celsius, which is the hypothermia, compared to 36 degrees Celsius, which is just shy of normal. So normal body temperature is 37 degrees Celsius, 98.6. 36 degrees Celsius, uh, 
I'm not going to do the math in my head. I don't know exactly what that works out to in Fahrenheit, but it's, you know, one degree sure. Celsius less than normal body temperature. Uh, and this was, like I said, it's published in New England Journal of Medicine in 2013, occurring in uh, 36 ICUs in Europe and Australia. Um, inclusion criteria, once again, was out of hospital arrest, age over 18 years old, had a GCS less than eight, so they were not really cooperative in terms of their neurological exam. They couldn't really file commands. Um, and then it did not matter what their initial cardiac rhythm was. So the other studies kind of looked at shockable rhythms versus non-shockable rhythms. This one looked at asystole, PEA, as well as uh, VTAC and VFib. Okay. Um, exclusion, they need to have at least 20 minutes of uh, continuous return of spontaneous circulation, which makes sense because prolonged ROSC kind of in- signifies that the code is over and it's not mm-hmm. a recode event. Sure. They need to be less than 240 minutes from return of spontaneous circulation to actually being screened and started in the, in the process. And then you need to have an unwitnessed arrest with asystole was also not included in the study because the unknown downtime could have sure. played a factor in the, uh, the idea of how long they were actually in a no flow state. And then if they started off with their body temperature less than 30 degrees, or if they had an intracranial hemorrhage, because once again, going back to the coagulopathy triad, <coughs> hypothermia, increases the risk of worsening bleed. So if they had an intracranial hemorrhage, we don't want to cool those patients. Once again, they rewarmed the patient slowly after the 24 to 28 hour window that they were at the, their temperature by 0.5 degrees Celsius per hour till they got to their body temperature of 37 degrees Celsius. Uh, then they also had a neurologist evaluate the patient at 72 hours uh, after they were finished rewarming. So that's kind of where we get that new paradigm of we don't really we can't really neuroprognosticate a patient until after 72 hours from rewarming so a lot of patients after they're in cardiac arrest families are immediately what's the prognosis what's the prognosis and we can't clinically make a determination until 72 hours after we rewarn them to get an idea of will they have what kind of neurological recovery they may or may not have sure so that's when the the neurologic evaluation occurred in in this study once again the neurologist was blinded to which treatment arm they were this that's the the blinding component in this randomized control study this one, the primary outcome was looking at all-cause mortality. It wasn't looking at the primary neurologic outcomes. It was looking at death with a secondary outcome of neurologic function. And so uh, the results now for this one, both groups were relatively even in terms of their baseline characteristics, in terms of comorbidities, age, gender. There was about 190, fa- not 150, sorry, 950 patients total, and their average starting temperature was 35 degrees Celsius. So that comes back to... We start cooling patients after cardiac arrest. They're also in a kind of a low flow state, so they're going to be more hypothermic regardless. Um, but they both start around the same temperature. Um, and then care with care was withdrawn in 27.9% of the patients that were in the hypothermia arm, or sorry, the 33-degree arm, compared to 24.7% in the 36-degree arm. And most of those reasons were for brain death. So pretty comparable numbers that were removed uh, from life support and ultimately passed away. At the end of the trial, 50% of the patients in the 33-degree arm compared to 48% in the 36-degree arm had passed away, which it was not statistically significant. So 50% and 48% were rather similar. They did a hazard ratio, which is one way of saying looking at you know, one intervention, is it more hazardous or not to the other? And so the hazard ratio was 1.06, which is essentially the same. So one means that they're even. Point if it's less than one, it's less hazardous. If it's more than one, it's more hazardous. 
And then the confidence interval, which kind of determines the statistical significance, was not statistically significant. Mm. So patients, like I said, did not have a better outcome of death in this trial, depending on which arm they were. It's 33 degrees or 36 degrees. Um, and then both groups were also very similar in their neuro neurological outcomes as well. So basically, the, the first study we talked about showed slight uh, benefit for hyperthermia, and then this one is showing yeah. completely the same. Yeah, so the, the, the first study showed really good improvement in, in the outcomes of both death and neurological function. Mm -hmm. This one shows that there's no difference in cooling them a lot versus cooling them a little bit. So 36 degrees is okay. still hypothermic, but it's not to the extent of 32 degrees. So this one showed that as long as you keep them cool, you have a good outcome. You don't, it's not the degree of coolness. It's the, the fact that they are cooled kind of has benefit. Okay. Um, and then in this study, they also noted that there was more outverse events that occurred in the 33 degrees Celsius group. Um, that was most likely, most commonly was electrolyte abnormalities like hypokalemia, which is low potassium, which in the grand scheme, low uh, electrolytes can be an issue in terms of cardiac arrhythmias, but that was the most common abnormality that they found was electrolyte abnormalities. Just because when you're cold, you might shiver, cause other different electrolyte um, uh, abnormalities to occur. But that three different that three percent difference is statistically it actually was yeah. So ninety three wow. yeah. I don't know how it, like it was, but it was ninety three percent to ninety percent. It was statistically significant. This is a much larger group of people, though, right? Yeah, this, this was nine hundred fifty people yeah. versus yeah. one hundred. Sure, yeah. sure, sure. Yeah. yeah, cool. All right, and then. Kind of in the same time frame, so in 2019, another study came out. This was the Hyperion trial. This one was also published in New England Journal. Uh, and this one actually looked at both in-hospital and out-of-hospital arrests. So every other arrest was out-of-hospital. This one had a subset of patients that were in-hospital cardiac arrest. Uh, once again, over 18, it had to be at least a GCS of 8 because I want to make sure that they're not neurologically intact before cooling the patient. The exclusion criteria was a no-flow time, so from cardiac arrest to start of CPR, less uh, less than 10 minutes, that had to be less than 10 minutes to be included. And then a low-flow time, so the CPR time, uh, had if it was greater than 60 minutes, would be excluded. And then if there was any signs of major hemodynamic, hemodynamic instability, which means that they're requiring epinephrine or norepinephrine infusions, which are uh, both vasopressors, greater than 100, oh, sorry, one microgram per kilogram per minute. They were also excluded from this uh, this study, and this primary outcome also looked at uh, favorable neurological outcomes at 90 days, as well as secondary outcomes of mortality and time of mechanical ventilation in the ICU. This study included 581 patients, uh, with a total of only 27.4% being in hospital cardiac arrest, and uh, sorry, 72.6% being in uh, out of hospital cardiac arrest. Uh, ultimately, the hypothermia arm, so this was comparing hypothermia to normothermia. Uh, hypothermia had 284 patients compared to 297 patients. And in those groups, the hypothermia group had 81.3% of patients die compared to 83.2% die. So not statistically significant, the same, roughly the same number of people passed away um, from the trial. But then the looking at the the favorable outcomes in terms of neuro, uh, neurologic outcomes, 10.2% compared to 5.7% had a favorable outcome, and this was statistically significant. So 29 out of the 284 patients in the hypothermia group had a favorable neurologic outcome, 
uh, one thing they did mention in the discussion portion of this the study was they missed confounding information like bystander resuscitation and actually the true no-flow uh, duration time. So that was a compounding factor that they think may have contributed to some of the, the results that they found. That's huge. Yeah. And then the the kind of the last study that a lot of people now are thinking is kind of putting an end to true hypothermia as we think of it at the 32 degrees is the TTM2 or the Targeted Temperature Management 2 trial. So this one was just published last year in 2021. Uh, same inclusion criteria had to be at least uh, return spontaneous circulation for 20 minutes, had to be at least over 18 years old. Um, this one you're excluded if you uh, if your ROSC was more than 180 minutes, so three hours from uh, screening into the, the study, or an unwitnessed cardiac arrest with asystole. Once again, going back to that idea of if it's unwitnessed and asystole, how much of the no-flow time were they actually in? The hypothermia goal was 33 degrees Celsius, and the normothermal goal was 37.5 degrees Celsius. And so every other trial, they kind of did like a normal fever management uh, system to prevent fevers in the normal thermia group. This one actively cooled patients to keep them below 37.8 degrees Celsius. So actually truly prevent them from becoming febrile. Um, and there was no active warming if the patient kind of naturally drifted below 37.8 or 37.5, but they would actively cool them below that number. Um, this one was also the largest of the studies. So it included 1,861 patients, which had 930 in the hypothermia through the 33 degree arm and 931 in the normothermia arm. And then kind of the same contraindications um, for starting hypothermia was the intracranial hemorrhages if they had early death or they're hemodynamically instable. And then this study found that in the hypothermia group, uh, 465 out of 925, which is roughly 50%, compared to 446 out of 925 in the normothermia group had died at six months. So that was not statistically significant. So the same number of people passed away uh, between the two arms. And then the poor neurologic outcomes were both at 55% had uh, poor neurological outcomes. So 45% of them had a favorable outcome. Um, and the numbers here were 488 out of 881 compared to 479 out of 866. So they kind of excluded some patients because they lost them to follow up for the neurological recovery. And then if they were, if they had passed away, they were considered a poor neurologic outcome in this arm. So the study looked at, and like I said, it found no statistical significance between hypothermia and normothermia as long as you actively kept them at normothermic temperatures. They also found that the hypothermia group had a higher incidence of arrhythmias that caused hemodynamic compromise. So there was 24% of the patients, so 222 out of 927 patients, compared to only 152 out of 921, or 16% of patients, that showed a relative risk, kind of going back to that hazard ratio, of 1.45%. So there was a skew in risk for hemodynamic instability in the hypothermia group that was statistically significant. So the the more patients in the cold arm had hemodynamic compromise because of an arrhythmia due to, due to hypothermia. So this kind of raised the question of why was the hypothermia trials in the beginning showing so much promise compared mm -hmm. to normothermia? Yeah, yeah. And so if you actually look back at some of these studies, like looking at the first one, that the, the initial 
TTM trial or targeted uh, temperature management trial, looking at the, the fever curves or the temperature curves that they showed for the patients, a lot of the patients had uh, of time spent in a febrile range, so temperature greater than 38 degrees Celsius. Um, they didn't really comment on what the temperature averages were for the groups, like the, the normal thermal group, what their average temperature was. They just kind of commented the hypothermia group was at 32 degrees. But in looking at the fever curves, themse the temperature curves themselves, the standard deviation bars that we're talking about, two standard deviations means that 95% of the population of that, that group is in those ranges. And that bar went up to 39 degrees Celsius. Mm. So a full degree of fever yeah. over, uh, over like I said, 38 degrees is, is a fever in the Celsius world. So the kind of thought process is that um, fever and not so much hypothermia is what's causing the bad neurological outcomes. And so the thought kind of now that we're, we're kind of starting to adapt to is actively preventing fever and actively cooling patients to prevent fever, but not necessarily cooling them down to 32 degrees Celsius, keeping them at 36 to 37 degrees Celsius, because it shows kind of a, uh, a benefit at their cold, at their cooler, but not necessarily at 32 degrees, especially with all the adverse events that we're noticing in these studies. Okay. So, I mean, the ultimate goal would be, and correct me if I'm wrong, is maybe we've look at we've been looking at this the wrong way the whole time then right it's just literally just preventing a fever you think exactly so it's preventing the, the temperature from going a pathologic temperature which is 38 degrees is, is, is kind of what is looking like is this the data is showing us now let me ask you this is that a normal thing that happens to every post-cardiac arrest patient not every post-cardiac arrest patient but there are a lot of you know inflammatory responses that kind of goes back to the physiology behind why we wanted to cool patients in the first place is there's that ischemia reperfusion causes an inflammation cascade. Mm -hmm. So if you think about the same thing happens when you have, you know, an infection, you have a virus, your body raises its temperature because the inflammation cascade produces what's called cytokines, which are these markers that tell your body there's something wrong happening, change the set point of my temperature so that I can uh, fight all this infection. The same thing happens in ischemia reperfusion is you have this inflammatory cascade that releases cytokines that the body then can start to develop a fever because of the same concept as behind an infection, but there's sometimes not actually an infection there. Yeah, it's interesting to me that, you know, you look at when we started these studies, what, what did we say, 2003, is that correct? Yeah, 2002. Yeah, 2002. So from 2002 until 2021, it's almost like we're just lumping in fever with normothermia. And it's like no one's taking the time to separate that. It's like almost like no one occurs to anybody that it, it's like some kind of tunnel vision or uh, some kind of bias of, of of attention. You know what I mean? So I will, so I will say uh, the Hyperion trial that we talked about from 2019 did also comment on that, okay. that the patients did spend a uh, – let me see what, what word mentioned that patients in the normal thermal group did spend a significant amount of time febrile. So they did comment that that was also a confounding variable in their statistical outcomes was these patients not only had this questionable downtime or bystander CPR event, but there's also this, they spent a significant amount of time that was actually over 38 degrees Celsius. And that is likely another factor that caused this. And then I think the TTM2 trial kind of solidifies that thought process of, you know, this pa these patients when we actively cooled them below 30 degrees and granted patients in that treatment, looking at the, the curves still did have some time in a febrile range. Mm -hmm. It just wasn't as dramatic as some of the earlier trials. And we noted that there was really no 
difference in terms of outcomes from the normothermic group as compared to the hypothermic group. Okay. Uh, we didn't talk about the chest yet, right? Not yet, no. Okay. Yeah, so then the during all this this research I was getting ready for this this uh, this podcast, I also found a breakdown of a subset of the Hyperion trial that was published in chest back in August of this year. Um, it basically just looked at the subset of the in-hospital cardiac arrest. So the 24.7% of patients that had cardiac arrest in hospital from the Hyperion trial. Um, and the total population size from that was 159. Um, the arrests tended to be an older population. Uh, asystole was the initial rhythm in most cases, and they were typically witnessed because they're in the hospital. Um, and the patients in these in this trial did receive more epinephrine as opposed to the out-of-hospital cardiac arrests. Um, the no-flow, so the time from cardiac arrest to starting of CPR, and the low-flow time, which was the time of CPR, were lower in the in-hospital group as opposed to the out-of-hospital group, which makes sense. You know, the in-hospital group, there's typically nurses, you know, techs, everyone else around that can do CPR, whereas out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, you have to call 911. Depending, oh, yeah. on, depending on what part of the, the you know, in Maryland example for where we live, you know, some parts of the county can take, you know, minutes to get there, you know, 10, 15 minutes to even get to get, you know, first responders there. Sure, sure. Okay. So the in-hospital arrest had a much lower time, uh, downtime. And then they found that 16.4% in the hypothermia group from the Hyperion trial, as opposed to 50, well, sorry, 5.8% in the normal thermic group were alive with a good neurological outcome. And that was, sorry, at 90 days, which was statistically significant. They did notice similar death rates in the two groups. Mm -hmm. So this kind of also goes back to the Hyperion thought process of some of these patients that spend time febrile in the normal thermic group. So that's a compounding factor to this, uh, as well as this was also a small population size. It was not really the the designated trial also. It was kind of a looking at the in-hospital arrests from another trial. So the in-hospital cardiac arrest, I think, still has some thought processes of do we need to look more into hypothermia versus normal thermia or, or is it kind of extrapolated from the out-of-hospital arrests that we can continue to do normothermic but actively treating patients to main them normothermic, you know, if that needs to be external cooling blankets like we do for the hypothermia arms to maintain them at a temperature less than 37.5 degrees Celsius to have that favorable neurologic outcome that is similar to the, the, the hypothermic without the risks of, that comes with hypothermia. I do have a couple questions, but I want to, up to this point, I just want to give a TLDR. So like, yeah, for because we just covered a lot of yes, information. We did. So if you don't mind just giving us that, and then I know, I'm sure Ken has a few questions. I definitely have a couple questions. Sure. So uh, the, the TLDR is essentially, we initially thought that hypothermia or cooling patients down to 32 degrees showed benefit in terms of neurological outcomes and death, meaning patients had a better neurological outcome is kind of looking more as though it's more so preventing fevers. That is what's causing the benefit from cooling patients and not so much physically cooling them. Cool. Cool. Okay. Uh, all right. I'll, I'll throw a question out there. So, um, you know, it seems to me, Patho when we get to talk about pathophysiology, um, one of the things that comes up over and over is the inflammatory response. And in these imperfectly designed, evolved, whatever, we, we want to, you know, 
try and dice that one out. But however these bodies are, um, the inflammatory response seems to have some benefit, but it seems to have a lot of drawbacks as well. And it seems to be something that whether we're talking anaphylaxis or sepsis or post-cardiac arrest fever, mm-hmm. you know, it seems like the inflammatory response can really hurt us. Um, it's definitely uh, got some drawbacks and flaws. So does that seem to be a, a common theme we see in, in, in intensive care EM? I mean, looking back at just looking at COVID in terms of the initial COVID, uh, you know, alpha and, and Bravo, and then even Delta variants of COVID, the, the, higher rates of ICU hospitalization was based on the immune response. In fact, I actually just attended a talk yesterday about this topic where the, the innate immune system, which is our, you know, neutrophils, our white blood cells, our, our non, I'm going to say smart, uh, uh, immune system, which is our B cells and T cells, it's called antibodies. The more primitive form of our immune system has multiple different pathways that it helps fight. And, I found this out, like I said, just yesterday, I haven't done the the research on it, but one pathway of that innate immune system response actually led to higher ICU admissions and deaths during COVID. So, and we also saw that with like the the cytokine storm, as we called it with, um, with COVID-19, especially in the beginning where patients would do well for a week and a half and then just out of some just decompensate very quickly, require intubation and, and end up passing away was because of this like cytokine storm that we saw which is this immune response that's our body's trying to fight the infection and then it just you know took over our body and same thing with sepsis like you said sepsis ultimately it's a severe infection but these the immune response to the infection that causes some of the the hemodynamic compromise that comes from the infection what what is and for lack of a better term and i'm not trying to be facetious or anything, but what, what is the design flaw in the immune system that leads to that exaggerated response that causes these problems? So I actually don't know that off, off the top of my head. I mean, I'm sure there it's comes down to our body is always in a component of regulation. So, you know, thinking of primarily like a blood clot where body's constantly clotting off and also stopping clotting. It's the same concept. And so it's a process of regulation that when, uh, you know, these pathogens or cytokines, whatever, cause these responses, it's a positive feedback loop that just keeps causing more and more and more that eventually causes the compromise. Okay. Yeah, the way I think about it is just, I mean, it's a primitive system, right? So I can't help but go back to like the... Uh, you know, coronary artery disease, development of foam cells, and like the mechanism behind that. I mean, it's just it, it's just doing what it can, uh, but it's like caveman medicine, right? I mean, it's right. it's uh, for lack of a better term, like it, it we just haven't evolved better processes, right? Um, you know, uh, and that might be something we can go over with you in greater detail too, like just the general processes of ischemia, right? I mean, because. <laughs> Uh, we, we did a really good talk a while ago with Dr. Ripberg, uh, the, what was it? The, the yin and yang of clot physiology. Mm-hmm. And we just talked about the, the mechanisms of TXA versus TPA and how, you know, what the, where the, what that relationship is. Um, but, uh, well, but then again, I don't want to get too far away from this conversation. So for, we removed hypothermia from the EMS protocol last year, right? Maybe two years. Ago? Maybe two years. Ago, but basically, recently, we, yeah, yeah. Recently. recently, we removed it. So, what what would your comments be to that? So, in the I would say in the short transport time that typically arises from a post cardiac arrest event. Um, obviously, going back to you know Maryland, the state that we're in right now, 
Western Maryland has a longer transport time as opposed to, you know, right now we're, we're in Baltimore County. It's a lot sure. quicker to get to a hospital uh, in the post-cardiac arrest setting. But in typically, you know, 15, 20-minute transport, not actively cooling a patient will likely not have, in my opinion, not have a detriment, especially because after the cardiac arrest phase, you're typically already hypothermic because hypothermia come that component comes from the low blood flow that's already happening in the low metabolic process that is causing uh that prevents the formation of heat wasn't there an issue too where pre-hospital cooling of these targeted temperature management patients was actually causing more problems because we couldn't maintain that cold temperature yeah, and you couldn't monitor it. Correctly. I'm sure that's also a component of it. Um, in terms of, like you said, you just, we threw ice packs in people's groins and, and armpits and neck folds. Yeah. And we just kind of, all right, we chilled them and then send them to the hospital. Yeah. We, we have, we have, I mean, we have what external temperature probes. Yeah. Yeah. We don't have anything internal or like with these, all these studies, they were, they had uh, bladder temperatures. So they had a Foley catheter with yeah. a temperature probe and they were yeah. actively monitoring blood, uh, you know, the, the internal body temperature. And, and we couldn't do that in the pre-hospital what setting. Was the, and you might not know this, but what was the average onset of uh, higher temperatures in patients post-cardiac arrest? Um, based on the first study, the, the TTM-1, It looks like temperatures kind of started. To, so both patients kind of start patient groups are around the same temperature between 35 and 36 degrees. And it looks like they kind of started to separate around four hours post ROSC. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so well, hopefully well before <laughs> exactly. Well after EMS has de- delivered them. Yeah, exactly. Kidding. Yeah. You know, hopefully, and not to mention, um, we also have so much other stuff we need to be doing. Yeah. Right. right? I mean, you know, back Lim- when limited hands. Yeah. And I mean, uh, we were just, before we start recording, we were talking about a call that we ran together a couple of years ago. And just like, even in that call, we had, we had enough hands. Yeah. We right? had like two paramedics, a paramedic student, yeah. myself as a, as an EMT, yeah, your driver, medical student and right? my driver. Yeah. Yeah. So we had five people in an area that usually did not, uh, we were lucky to have me and him if he showed <laughs> up. Right. Or me and my partner, if we were luckily not on, you know, the separate call. So, yeah, I, 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 I seem to agree with you, especially it seems like such a, like it's it just, for lack of a better term, it was it was crude execution of attempted hypothermia. I mean, I think <laughs> folks were trying to do the best they can. I wonder when that protocol was initiated. Uh, that would uh, that'd be an interesting question. Like between where these studies were coming out, when that, you know. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, mean, remember- I got my EMT in 2011 and it um, was part of the protocol then. I was going to ask you, do you remember when? I remember it starting. I don't remember exactly when. It was early in my, I got my EMTI in 2008. So it couldn't have, I don't think it was before that for Maryland EMS. I could be wrong. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like I remember it starting. Okay. Yeah. So maybe 2010s. Probably, yeah. probably. 2010s. Yeah. yeah. So where, where do you go? Where do you see this going from there? If you had, you know, magic wand and infinite funding and you wanted to study <laughs> this, what, how would you design something and what would you, uh, you know, what would you want to look at? Uh, and then the last thing, but, uh, well, not the last thing, but another thing that I want to talk about is CPC scoring. Cause mm. that's something that, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, a lot of folks, I didn't know about it until like I was helping with a, you know, cardiac arrest and epinephrine study and I'd, and so if you could just touch on that, especially the difference between one and two, <laughs> because that's a huge difference. Yeah. So I guess the, the, the question is where, we, you know, infinite funding, where we would go with this is just to kind of confirm 
the the data that we find now in terms of with TTM2 or targeted temperature uh, management two trial is looking at, I mean, unfortunately with IRB processes to get approving for, for research, you can't really look at a normothermic and actively normothermic and a non-actively normothermic. I don't know how ap- approvable that would be, but looking at something that maintaining an active temperature of 37.5 as opposed to allowing patients to kind of run febrile mm. to see if that is truly the statistical difference. Is, is it a maintaining active normothermia versus fever as opposed to just hypothermia? Make and, sure you say what IRB is. Yes, yeah, uh, Institutional Review Board, which is the process that all these studies have to go through to get approved to be able to perform research on both animals and humans uh, to make sure that it is a ethical process and that it is not a detriment to patients in terms of, you know, if trying to compare something that we know is actively harmful to a patient to something that is trying to treat is would not be approved because it, we already know it has active harm to the patient. Yeah, and then we uh, we, we do want to talk about CPC score, but before we mm-hmm. do that, um, you know, I wonder if there's an opportunity here for a technology solution that's not ice packs. I just want to throw that out there. You know, so for me, like I just got knee surgery, and there's this oh. cool thing that I. Uh, they get sent home with me. It's like an ice machine that wraps around my knee. Is that the game ready? Uh, that's that's one of the brands of it. Really? When I, when I broke my ankle. That I got to use this game thing's ready. cool. Mine doesn't <laughs> compress though. It just oh, it no, just mine co- it's, and it, you put ice in it and water and it circulates water. Nice. Like as long as it's on. So I wonder if there's something like that. But I mean, in in the hospital, like in in hospital post cardiac arrest management, we do those kind of devices like ice ice wraps that mm-hmm. push ice water through but in the pre-hospital setting it, it was ice packs <laughs> Ooh, yeah i know we're going to talk about cbc yeah. score but another thing we should talk about is active versus passive cooling because that's something mm-hmm. in ems that we say you know we don't do active cooling right and right? though i remember there was a time there was discussion about oh we need to get refrigerated iv fluid and stuff oh, yeah. like that um obviously that's not you know yeah. what happened um, yeah. but <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, cause those were used in these studies that they, if they couldn't cool someone actively from external means, they would do internal cooling. And I remember in the hospital on, you know, when I was on my 24 hour call in the ICU, we had a post-cardiac arrest. I could not cool them down. We were doing what's called ice lavages where you drop in a nasogastric tube into the patient's stomach and you had a basin just full of ice, you know, sterile ice water. And you're just pumping ice water into their stomach and then sucking it back out and trying to cool their internal body temperature. So that was one of the techniques that they used. They also used, like you said, refrigerated saline. And then they also at much more, um, I want to say bougie institutions had internal catheters that you could put that actually would put ice water sterile ice water into the catheter itself and come that. out so that's how they would in, internally cool patients if they could not actively cool them from the external routes yeah, the look on moose's face as <laughs> no, you're talking is no. just <laughs> fantastic yeah hey i don't know man i'm just a paramedic uh do you mind touching on cpc scores real quick? Yeah, so uh cpc scores are actually something that i i usually was more common with the the modified rankin score mm-hmm. which is another neurological uh recovery score which is modified rankings one through six CPC scores are one through five where a score of one uh, is no compromise whatsoever Two, I believe is moderate uh, difficulty. Uh, So yeah, one is good recovery. Two is a moderate disability. Three is a severe disability. Four is vegetative state. And then five is death. So one versus two, it's uh somewhat subjective uh also there is 
you know, some processes to look at in terms of getting a score of one versus two versus three versus four. So four is like I said, vegetative state. They are intubated. They're alive. Their heart is beating They're they're but they have very minimal external stimuli that will wake them up. And then five is death. So looking at good versus moderate disability is kind of like you said, that's why they kind of lump them together in the study. So a good outcome was one or two mm-hmm. as opposed to severe disability, which is, you know, like bed bound, minimally, uh, functional in terms of their neurological status. Sure. The, the one thing, I, and the reason I bring that up is from a quality of life perspective, there is a significant difference between one and two, especially depending on what you do for a living or what you do at baseline. Mm-hmm. A construction worker who has to be very active with their hands and has to have, you know, whatever, you know, very fine, accurate motor skills or even a surgeon mm-hmm. or a mechanic mm-hmm. would have significant disability with yes. a CPTC score of two, which is otherwise considered a positive outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I, I, I just want our listeners to know that, you know, even in the future when they're reading studies. Um, the other thing uh, that I want to bring up real quick, and I think it might be uh, that we've been wanting to do a, a series about research, uh, mm-hmm. a re- research, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Just uh, knowing, understanding the world of research. Uh, we've been wanting to do a series on that. And this, uh, th- I'm glad you, you know, I really appreciate you reviewing all these articles because it kind of gives a glimpse on the stewardship that's involved, right? So, I mean, you're sitting here in front of us with, you know, what, five, six articles. You have everything, you know, highlighted. You you grow, you dove into each of their methods and uh, you discuss things, uh, you know, topics like statistical signif- significance, standards devi- standard deviations, and also uh, you mentioned um, it, limitations of studies, right? Uh, the one thing I want to really, uh, uh, you know, highlight here is you have multiple different studies in front of you, mm-hmm. right? No one paper gives you the gospel to, towards the magic of medicine. Uh, That's a big issue for a lot of people in EMS is we tend to read one study and say, ah, the new, you know, this is the truth. This is the way it is now. But then there's 10 other studies that, you know, half of them say the same thing. The other half say something different. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, it really like the critical thinking that goes into, and I don't have that skill for the record. I, I don't want, you know, I'm not trying to act like, you know, higher than thou. Like I, I am very crude when it comes to my interpretation of research, but I va- really value the folks that are able to, um, you know, interpret and, uh, you know, evaluate, uh, the, the cluster of studies in any one topic and are humble enough to understand their own limitations and also what needs to be done to move forward. Uh, so I, mean, I just want to say that, um, you know, again and again, we, I, I think, I hate to say it, but EMS maybe, you know, doesn't know what they don't know, right? The Dunning-Kruger thing, uh, me included. I'm, I'm a part, I'm a part of that group, uh, that, you know, I don't know what I don't know. I think it's an active process. Like you have to actively understand that you don't know what you're doing. Like you don't know what you don't know. And even going over research studies, like I did not just wake up one day and know how to, it's, uh, you know, I still am learning how to go over these projects. It just takes time just reviewing and understanding, looking at like odd documentation in terms of one way that's worded, though they word a certain way because they're trying to hide the fact that something else is happening. So it's just a process. Yeah. I find it interesting that it was only New England Journal of Medicine papers that yes. even did it. <laughs> yes. I, I did also notice that. Um, like I said, the, the most recent one was in, was in Chest. Oh, yeah. yeah but, yeah. Uh, yeah, for the most part, it was New England Journal that kind of had them all published. Yeah, I'm surprised that Annals would have nothing on it. Yeah. Uh, Annals or JAMA, even. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. Now, is that just out of curiosity and certainly not 
casting any aspersions on the New England <laughs> Journal of Medicine. But is that any kind of a red flag for a bias when only one source is carrying articles of a particular topic? Not necessarily, because um, these papers cannot be published in multiple sites. So once you kind of submit it to the, that journal, okay, the rights are owned by that journal. So it's not like I could submit it to New England Journal and then... Once it's accepted, submit it to JAMA also, because New England Journal of Medicine then technically owns the rights of that paper. See, this is why we need to do a research yeah. <laughs> uh, series. I had no idea. And also, it's yeah, a very... All, all, every single one of these articles I print off have uh, property of the Massachusetts Medical Society, because yeah. that's who is the, the group behind New And England also, Journal. it's bad. It's like bad juju to apply, like submit your thing to mm -hmm. more than one journal at a time. Okay. Yeah. And also, I mean, New England Journal is one of the, the, like, the most prestigious. I mean, JAMA is also extremely prestigious both of them are very prestigious article uh, journals so either one of them getting you know getting published in either one of those is listen just... i'm happy with my couple publications in pre-hospital <laughs> emergency care okay? I'm, happy with that. And I, I'm totally cool yeah, with that I, super cool article. i definitely am far from being published in either of these two journals <laughs> yeah that, that'd be cool though hey uh any last comments ken no i don't think so i thought that was a great discussion yeah. thank you very yeah. much Dr. Brady, do we cover everything? I know we were. I think so. Yeah, this yeah. was really cool. This was really cool. And uh, and honestly, it's cool to see you again, too. Yeah, good yeah. to see you, too. Thank you for and having me. Absolutely. Anytime. I'm sure we're, we're definitely going to have you on yeah. again if you're interested. Definitely. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks for doing the, the hard work with the, the, the articles. Seriously, of course. it's an example of what we should all be doing at all times while, when we're discussing these things. So. Uh, yeah, thank you very much. Uh, so, folks, uh, actually, Ken, you can finish, finish this out. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening to Alert Medic 1. We hope you have a wonderful day. We hope you enjoyed what you heard today. Moose has something to say. Welcome to Josh Cook. Formal yes. welcome to yes. the team. Welcome, uh, uh, paramedic Josh Cook, to our team. Yeah. Uh, we're very excited. He's going to be joining us here soon. He's going to be uh, our third regular uh, person here on the show. So yep. it's going to be awesome. I, I wish you could have been here today. And we, we do have a fourth uh, that we've selected. We haven't made the public announcement yet. We're going to be making that here soon. Really excited to have both of these folks on. Uh, really diverse background. Very interested in, you know, uh, not only the EMS education aspect of what we do, but the, you know, the functional physiology and evidence-based, uh, you know, uh, system that we've developed here. Um, so, yeah, we're definitely excited. Dr. Vipberg is going to be on again in a few. You know, he's excited to continue to work with us. And, uh, yeah, we're, we're, we have a lot of good content coming towards you guys. So thank you very much. And let us know if there's anything you guys want to hear about. Absolutely. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Alert Medic One. Most important thing you can do for us, leave us a like, a rating, and a review on the podcast app of your choice. Check us out on social media and have a wonderful day. Goodbye. You've been listening to the Alert Medic One podcast, the premier emergency medical services podcast with your hosts, Mustafa Sadiq and Ken Sanner.